church. God's word, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15 through verse 20. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This we read from God's holy word. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. It is, as we've said, the the Christmas season and shopping assails us wherever we go. And as an economics major in college, I have two words for you as you do your shopping. And yes, they're Latin words, caveat emptor, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Uh, One of the dangers of the marketplace when you're buying or selling, uh, buying as consumers, is is do you get what you pay for or do you get the right thing? Uh, There's a type of product out there, and I'm sure many of you have discovered this, called a knockoff. Something that looks just about like the prime item, but it's like a fraction of the cost, and it's, it's readily available. They've got a whole bucket full of them. You might think of Gucci handbags or, or some fancy perfume, and the bottle looks slightly different, but these knockoff products are imitations, usually of something very well-known and very expensive, but they're lower in quality and price than the original. Uh, It's just a cheap knockoff, as we say. It's not the real deal. Knockoff consumer goods are usually inferior quality, and they're cheaper, and they're often sold without authorization. Um, And these bad qualities sometimes can affect the use of the item or the longevity. The handle comes off, or the bottle top breaks, or the toy stops working. Often leads to disappointment, or it's... It's not compatible with other things. I remember many a time getting a a particular toy that doesn't fit with the rest of the set because it's a knockoff. Years ago, there was an electronic handheld game called Game Boy, and uh, lo and behold, someone from uh, a foreign country was marketing a knockoff, but they called it Game Child. And uh, it, you don't have to go far to find popular knockoffs and how odd they are. You may have eaten potato chips that come stacked neatly in a can. Uh, you can buy some cheaply under the name Prongles. Or if you're hungry and you want to stop at a restaurant and you see that red hat-shaped roof, you could go to Pizza Roof or Burger Queen. These are real places. Uh, And I started thinking of this because I was listening to someone talking about the city of Bethlehem in an Easter meditation and mentioning uh, what she saw when she was last in Bethlehem. 
There was a coffee shop with a famous green and white sign and circular logo. You know what coffee shop I'm talking about. Stars and Bucks. Not the real Starbucks. It's right there on Manger Street. You can Google it. It's there. It's a real deal. And pictures will show you. It pretends to be Starbucks, but it's a knockoff. And I'm glad to see that the online reviewers say the coffee is very good. And they have many other products there on Manger Street. But what do people think of Jesus born in the manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago when they ask, what child is this? There have been voices that say he's not all that Christianity says he is. He, w- he was just a, a wise man or he was caught up in something that was bigger than him and he's not the real deal. My friends, the Bible's clear on this very thing. Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is both God and man, the only being capable of procuring salvation for humanity, for undoing the curse of our sin and rebellion from our creator. He himself, Jesus, fully God, fully creator, as we saw last week, came in the incarnation, born of a virgin, according to scripture, in Bethlehem, was raised in the Holy Land, And as uh, he started his public ministry, walked among us and made the Father known. And he said, no one comes to the Father but by me. He lived a righteous life. He laid it down, died on the cross, was buried, and on the third day rose. And then ascended after 40 days into heaven where he now dwells. This Jesus is the real deal. But into the ancient world, a defense had to be given The letter of Paul to the Colossians, there's a little city uh, in in the ancient world called Colossae. So this was written to them, but also to be shared by others, including us, was an attack upon false teachers in Colossae who tried portraying Christ as something less than God, as someone who needed supplement if you were going to get any benefit from him. As much as if they were to say he's just a knockoff. There's something else out there that's better. So in this epistle, and even in this passage, Paul takes great pains to speak clearly about who Jesus is. And the season of Advent, the season of Christmas, is a wonderful time to answer that question for others. What child is this? This is Jesus. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created All things were created through him and for him. In him, all things hold together. This is the language describing Jesus as our God who dwelt among us. The verses we're looking at today add to our understanding of who Jesus is. In verses 18 and 19, you see that Paul uh, builds upon this same language, but he tells us a few more of the titles of Jesus. And from these, we learn many helpful things for us. (laughs) Let's look at these verses. First, in verse 18, we're told that he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. What, what What is Paul going on to write about? 
Well, he's already laid a foundation that Jesus is a creator. He has God-like powers because he's God to create all things, hold all things together. And we typically think of the physical world. Now, he speaks to Jesus and his powers explicitly in the spiritual world. And he speaks not of the physical first creation, but hear me, he begins to speak of Jesus as creator of the spiritual realm, the new creation, the church. Jesus creates his church. Do you know what the word church comes from? It comes from that Greek word ekklesia, to call out churches. They're the called out ones, those that have been summoned from the world or where we're in rebellion against God to know God and to serve him you've received that calling by the Holy Spirit of God and by the gospel called out ones it's Jesus who does that calling and just as Jesus as God was there at the beginning and said let there be light It's Jesus and his spirit at work in the world that speak to the souls of men and women and say, come, follow me. In me, you will have life and have it abundantly. Jesus creates his church. There's a scholar by the name of Greg Beal, and I've read much of him. I've met him. He is a fantastic God-fearing, Bible-honoring scholar, Greg Beale, said about what's happening here, describing Jesus. He makes the comparison between the first creation and the new creation of the church. Just as the pre-incarnate Christ was the divine sovereign over the temporary first creation, so certainly he will be the divine human sovereign over the new and everlasting creation inaugurated by his resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul's telling us. Just as someone, God, created all that you see, Jesus is at work creating the church, his kingdom. And that's a tremendously important reality for us to know. Jesus, as the source of the new creation, the church, he is the source. And the church is the visible locus of the renewal of creation. By the way, here's a a quick footnote that came from a sermon from one of the Puritans on this text. He paused to write, and, and this was to his Puritan audience, it's not sufficient to just be a member of a local church. And I think that you are part of the body of Christ. You need to be spiritually born again to be a part of the church. You need to have been called out from the world to have that creative power of regeneration within you. You need to be new. You need to be born again, the Bible says, to truly be a part of the church. So if you're watching at home or later online and and you say, oh, this is exciting. I just want to come and I'll join CPCC. I'll show up at 516 Mo Road and sit in these rows. There's some good seats right there. Well, you can be among us. But to belong to the church, to be part of the body of Christ, requires that supernatural creative power of Jesus. We do not save ourselves. 
We don't just wake up some morning like we're going to do spiritual Pilates and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get my soul in shape. Well, if you do wake up with those impulses, flee to Jesus and read his word and trust in the gospel and gather with his people. But only Jesus, by his spirit, can bring about the new birth. He creates his church. It says not only that he is the head of the body, the church, it uses that specific language, he is the head of the body. There are two aspects to that. Jesus rules his church and Jesus sustains his church. The Bible predominantly in the New Testament speaks of head in terms of authority or rule, someone who's in charge. But it also has the the meaning of source or one who originates, just as a a man can be the head of his family, uh, both by his presence and leading, but also by being the progenitor of children and grandchildren. There's a unity of these thoughts. Christ rules the church, even as your brain rules your fingers, arms, legs, and toes. He's in charge. And we do well to remember that. And Paul mentions that to the people in Colossae because those false teachers that showed up, they are not in charge. Just because Paul the Apostle is absent or Epaphroditus who planted the church may be absent, somebody else is there. It's really Jesus who rules the church. May we never forget it. As head, Jesus sustains the church. He provides spiritual life. In Romans 8, there's wonderful language about uh, the Christian life in the spirit of God. Romans 8 would be worth reading the whole chapter at this point. But just verse 11 reminds us, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. When you're saved, you are also secured. You're also sustained. You're also fed by the spirit of Christ, by the word of the Lord. Jesus becomes not only a cleansing fountain from sin for our salvation, but he becomes an ongoing fountain of living water to sustain his people. He rules his church and he sustains his church. The church is all about Jesus, our head. And we should remember that. Indeed, as Colossians goes on, we're not studying the whole book during Advent, but When you get to Colossians 3, if you're reading ahead, you will hear this exhortation. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you become a Christian, your spiritual life is in your union with Christ. But there's more here in verse 18. He is the head of the church the head of the body, the church. And then it says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Oh, why does it talk about that? It did speak of that earlier when it said uh, uh, he was the firstborn of creation, which talked about his preeminence over the universe. But here something further is said when he says he is the, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Beginning, you think of Adam. Jesus is a second Adam. He's the spiritual Adam of the new creation. 
Just as everyone now alive can trace their human parentage back to Adam and Eve. And it's fascinating to see how DNA seems to confirm a common source when you track DNA trees. But I digress. Spiritually, Jesus is our second Adam. And those who are alive must be found in him. He is the beginning of this new creation spiritually. And it says explicitly, the firstborn from the dead. Now, Jesus did die, but he did not die for his own sins. He died in our place that he might give us life. And it says he's uh, the firstborn from the dead. What's the Bible term for rising from the dead? Resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus that enables us, get this, to have two resurrections. Two. This is a two for one. The resurrection of Jesus enables us to be raised from death unto life, to be born again. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul writes to the Ephesians, in which you used to walk. But in Christ, we've been made alive. So there's a first resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. Colossians later on in chapter 2 says this in verse 13. And you, he's writing to Christians, you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, that's spiritual death, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You've been made alive. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first glorified son of God to walk on the earth. He is God. But he leads in the establishment of his church and offers us a resurrection from death unto life. A spiritual resurrection. You see, the church is the company of those who share the risen life of Christ. We were dead, but now we are alive. But there's a second resurrection, and this is the one that we most typically think of. We almost neglect our new birth. We're thinking ahead as we get older or as a disease or illness or accident comes near us. We think, oh, I will die someday, but Jesus will raise me and take me into heaven. Well, that's the second resurrection. And to be raised at that last day, that second resurrection, which will happen to every human being will be a resurrection unto life or death. If you are in Christ, that latter physical resurrection of our dead bodies with our souls reunited to stand before God, we will face judgment and Jesus will stand there alongside us as our advocate and say, Father, these are those I died for. All that you've given me are not lost. Here they are. And he will turn to us and say, enter into the joy of the kingdom of God. At the second physical resurrection into heaven. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We often call that the resurrection chapter. He has these words about Christ in verses 20 and following. In fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Similar language here. For as by a man came death. By man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There are two resurrections. 
And you can look further to this in Revelation chapter 20. It speaks of the first resurrection. If you've been through the first resurrection, death has no power over you. Can I get an amen? In writing to these Colossians about what child is this? He's not only creator of the physical world, but he is creator of all the spiritual children of God, the new creation. And he is the head of the church. He's its authority and sustainer. And he enables us to be gathered with God the Father in the end because of his resurrection. There's a twofold state of the church. Both states of the church made possible by Jesus. The state of grace. We've had our spiritual resurrection and we live by grace in the fellowship of God's people. But there'll be that state of glory in the life to come. Jesus makes both possible. That's part of what Romans 8, if we were to read that whole chapter, talk about. If you've gotten life by Christ, continue to walk in the spirit of Christ. And so Paul hints at all these things as he writes here that Christ is just the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. But then he goes on at the end of 18 and 19 to speak of Jesus as supreme and sufficient. Jesus as supreme and sufficient. So that's the second major division for the sermon this morning. And let me just remind you, the world is always full of knockoff saviors and things that it would purport that you need in order to have a happy life, a fulfilled life, or eternal life. But here in the Bible, we're reminded that Jesus is the best possible gift to receive. And that gift is sufficient. So these two terms kind of go together and they they end up blessing us tremendously. The end of verse 18 says that in everything he may be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Those phrases tell us further who Jesus is and what he is for us. And I need to set the table here by talking again about the false teachers in Colossae. Because the words that Paul uses here are actual arguments and attacks against those false teachers. We don't know exactly who the false teachers were. The Colossians heresy, whatever it was, de-emphasized the person and work of Christ and offered other avenues for communion with God apart from Christ or alongside Christ. And you should know that that doesn't sound biblical. That sounds like another gospel. And in Colossae, it probably wasn't Jewish Judaizers bringing back the law and Mosaic regulations and enforcing them. It's something different here. And most think it was the incipient version of Gnosticism. Boys and girls, Gnosticism is an odd word. It begins with the letter G, but the G is silent. G-N-O-S. Gnostic. Gnosticism. It's related to the word to know, and the secret knowledge of the Gnostics was key to being saved. And in the ancient world, this seems to have crept into the church at Colossae. It was brought about, says one scholar, as an aberration by the adulteration of sound apostolic doctrine with pagan philosophy or even astrology and Greek mythology. Most of what we know about 
Gnosticism is in the writings of Arnaeus, that early church father who wrote a, a very long book called Against Heresies. It's against Gnosticism, and I was pleased to study that. And Irenaeus is a hero of the faith for exposing that and, and putting forward sound doctrine. What were they talking about, these Gnostics? Well, they would talk about a dualistic worldview, that there's a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. That dualism is alive and well today. But in their dualism, they talked about the good realm and the bad realm. The good realm was the spiritual realm in the heavenly places. The bad realm was anything physical, the physical realm. And it's interesting that they called that spiritual realm the Pleroma, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, the Pleroma, which is simply the Greek word for fullness. You see where we're going. The Gnostics were spreading this room that they knew something about the fullness, about the heavenly places and spiritual beings. And boy, did they have spiritual beings. They had more than you could number. Hundreds upon hundreds and 70 times 70 spiritual beings, aeons, and and different names for them. In fact, at one point, Irenaeus writing about these Gnostics just had to mock them. You keep making up more gods. They believe that the creation, the world, was not by a good God, but by a fallen aeon. And so creation was evil. It was the, the fruit of a defect. What did they think about Jesus? Well, the spiritual realm and the physical realm couldn't match. So any talk about Jesus as God incarnate, eh, the Gnostics weren't very big on that. Those two don't mix And in terms of redemption, they didn't think it was possible for Jesus to have suffered on the cross or died. You can't do that if their views hold fast. Worldviews matter. And in the ancient world, the apostle said, don't let these ideas into the church. Remember clearly who Jesus is. In chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul would warn them in verse 8. He would say, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And the warning of Paul for 2,000 years ago is needed yet today. As people are talking about the, the spiritual world and animals and and, and animals have human feelings too and, 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 and confusion about creation and what is spiritual and, and, and who's in charge or what's good and what's bad. It continues in this dualistic sense. But what the Bible has told us again in this paragraph is that the physical world and the spiritual world are both under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to directly confront that Gnostic thinking when he writes this statement. Verse 19, for in him, in Jesus, all the pleroma of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the Gnostics are scratching their head. The spiritual world, which was good, indwelling a physical body, 
Paul attacks them head on to say this is exactly what God has done in Jesus. And how do we know that Jesus was divine? Well, we have the gospel accounts of his claims, of his miracles, of his sinlessness, and his resurrection from the dead. We don't have to speculate on, on who's up there in the heavenly realms, what kind of spiritual beings exist. Boys and girls, the Bible tells us clearly the God who made heaven and earth so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that those who believe on him might have life and have it to the full. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. We hear it here in verse 19 and again in chapter 2 after that warning in verse 8. Paul goes on immediately to say that again in verse 9 in chapter 2. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's who Jesus is. He is not just a baby in the manger. He's not just a rabbi on the roadside or the hillside. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, the Son of God. And we can't just leave him on the cover of a Christmas card or in a manger scene because he has completed those things. He said it was finished on the cross. He spoke to his disciples about pouring out the Holy Spirit and he ascended and he sits at the right hand of God the Father on high and he will return and he will call for an accounting from every creature he has created. And only those that have been born again will hear his welcome into his kingdom. He will separate the sheep and the goats. Jesus taught he would return to separate, to claim his own. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Not only in his incarnation, but permanently. He has inherited the name that is above every name. We call Jesus Lord. King of kings and Lord of lords. All the fullness of God dwells in him, which leads to these two consequences. He has supremacy in all things, and he is sufficient for us. He has supremacy. What's the definition of supremacy? I know the ESV uses the word preeminent. Uh, supremacy is a, is a synonym to that. It's an adequate translation of that same word. To be supreme is the state of being superior to all others in authority, status, and power. Well, that sounds pretty high up. We, we see it in our movies, don't we? You have the bad guys, and you have the chief bad guys, and the strong bad guys, and then you have the head bad guy on this planet, but then there's the supreme leader... Or the supreme so-and-so, because he's the top. We understand the language. The Bible says, tells us who Jesus is, so that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Jesus would have the supremacy. And he does. Supremacy, not just... In spiritual matters, not just in your religious life. What's your religious preference? And you get a couple boxes to check. And the most common box nowadays among young people is the N-O-N-E box. None for religious affiliation. 
My friends, Jesus is not simply Lord of Sunday or Lord of your spiritual understanding. He is Lord of all. Is he not? That in everything he would have the preeminence. That's the purpose of God in sending his son. Who is this? Oh, you should know. This is God come in the flesh. And Jesus, he works in this way that confounds the world. Nobody wants to listen to a crucified Savior. But listen, we must because he alone has the words of life. And when he appears at his second coming, it may be in my lifetime and yours. When Jesus appears, every eye will behold him. And every human being will instantly say, it's true. It's unseen for now. The rule of Christ in his church looks so meager at times. But lives are being changed. There's a work going on in many places of the world. If we knew it all, we would jump for joy. But the world doesn't pay attention. The world didn't really pay attention to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in Bethlehem. Not out in the stable at least. When the Savior of the world was born. But I tell you, heavenly beings paid attention. An orchestra and a a choir of angels sang, Glory to God in the highest and peace among men. We should not neglect this Jesus. He has supremacy in all things. There's a fascinating history to this word, preeminence. In the Greek, one of the best places to find what it means is to go back to the book of Esther, which is Old Testament. That's Hebrew. But the Old Testament translated into Greek, the Septuagint, Esther 5, verse 11. The bad guy in the story of Esther, Haman. He was boasting about how preeminent he had become. He had all this authority and power, and he had a little plan to do away with the Jews. And he was about to spring his plan and he's boasting, and this, that's the same word, to, to believe you have all the power and authority and control that your plans will come to fruition. Well, we know what happened to Haman. The God of the Jews turned his plan upside down. Haman was a knockoff. But Jesus is the real deal. We know that God the Father, the creator of the universe, along with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God accepted the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by welcoming Jesus into heaven. That affirmation of bringing Jesus back to life, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said before he left. Absolutely true. He has the supremacy in all things. How foolish it is in the world to imagine That the Bible just speaks of our spiritual life and not the rest. I want to make this other point too before we close. Jesus is sufficient for us. When we talk about supremacy and rule, we're all ready to bow and acknowledge who Jesus is. But do you realize what that means for us? God's dwelling with us in Jesus brings us all that we need. God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? If you have a relationship with the supreme being, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have all you need. 
We're looking at verse 19, and it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God's dwelling is the point here. God's lingering presence. We know in the history of the world, God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until they got kicked out and the garden was closed. You can't dwell with me. I won't dwell with you because of your sin. But God came up with a way to call a people to himself and to give us foreshadowing of the work of Christ. He called out the Jews from Ur of the Chaldees. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll give you a promised land and I'll dwell among you. At first, I'll dwell among you in a traveling tent called the tabernacle. The dwelling. He will tabernacle. He will dwell among you. But you can't come into my tent. Not everybody. And you can't come into the Holy of Holies because you're not. And later on, there'd be the temple in Jerusalem. And where did God dwell? He dwelt on earth at the temple in Jerusalem among his people. But with the coming of Christ, something new was done. God made his dwelling among us. I hope you know the precious words of John chapter 1. If not by memory, you can read them. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus is God's dwelling among man. So when Jesus walked by the physical temple, he could say, not just of that temple, but of his own body, he come down and... and, and in three days it would be built up again. Because Jesus came to fulfill the role of the temple. That's one of the explicit points under how God is sufficient for us in Jesus. To draw near to God, we need to draw near to Jesus, not travel to Jerusalem to the site of the temple or wait for it to be rebuilt because God is done with that. That temple was destroyed and not rebuilt because God in Jesus is building his spiritual temple. God is dwelling in Jesus. And if you want to approach God, if you have any spiritual inclinations, how do you fulfill them? You come to Jesus because God's presence, his fullness dwells in Jesus. Greg Beale again says, Christ fulfilled the role of the temple in which one finds the full presence of God. He goes on to say, the point would be that God's presence on earth is no longer in the earthly temple, the Holy of Holies, but now in Christ, who eschatologically, instantaneously, and typologically fulfills all that the temple represented. And the Holy Spirit continues Jesus' earthly presence in the church on earth. It doesn't get any better than that. Gnostics who were, who were guessing about what existed up in the play Roma, up there and all the stars, all these beings, and how they battle it out. They don't have anything to do with earth. Well, Paul says, Jesus created the earth. Jesus came, and all the earth in its fullness exists for him, and in him the fullness of God dwells. There is sufficiency for the believer here. We don't need anything else or anyone else than Jesus. There are no omissions. Jesus doesn't need to be supplemented. He is my all in all. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, his word, his spirit are sufficient for us to have a life of godliness. 
True spirituality is found only in a relationship with Jesus, where God dwells. In closing, we need to point out just a couple of things. Uh, The first should be obvious from what we've been saying. Salvation is found only in this God-man Jesus. He's not only creator, but he is builder of the church. He's the one who calls men out of the world to himself. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Oh yeah, all the hands can go up. Jesus says, I will give you rest. Jesus was present in creation and on the seventh day with the Father and the Spirit. He rested, said creation was good. Jesus is building his church, his new creation. And as he adds to its number, he gives us rest and will ultimately bring us to a place of rest. Only Jesus pleased God. Why would you seek a relationship with God anywhere else? from any other philosophical system or religious system. Only Jesus pleased God and proved it. The Bible tells us all about that. Second closing exhortation is that Christians must depend upon their head. I saw a a, a great uh, scholar use the simplest of illustrations talking about these verses. A body that does not stay connected to its head does not long survive. They're going, that's not theology, that's just reality. If you want to have chicken for dinner, how do you, what do you have to do? You have to take the head off the chicken so you can prepare. The body and the head must stay together. Christians must depend upon their body. Jesus is not simply a fountain of grace to forgive us of our sins, but he is the fountain of life. Paul would write at the beginning of Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you've been born again and you're saved, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We're depending on him for salvation. We ought to depend upon him daily. Don't write him off. Don't, don't put Jesus in a closet just to come out on Sundays. Every day depend on him. Draw near. In the Old Testament, one of the prophets, Jeremiah, said, uh, you know, you need to drink from that living water. He said, uh, complaining uh, from God, uh, Jeremiah 2, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And Jeremiah 2 goes on to say, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We know better. We know where life is found. Why do we still try to live life apart from Jesus rather than under Jesus? Those broken cisterns, those are the knockoffs. They can't give you that abundant life here and now. Only Jesus can. Jesus said, if a man comes to me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. Depend on your head. And finally, just an observation that the body of Christ, if it is the body of Jesus, the Son of God, the church will abide forever. 
We, we ought to understand that. That this work is permanent. Yes, churches in this world on certain streets, they grow small and sometimes close. But the church, the church of God in the world, will never close, never shut down or end. We're in relationship with the Son of God. The church is eternal. Make investments here. Put your treasure in that which lasts. The body, the church, will abide forever. Give yourself to its head. Give yourself to its members who will be around for a long time. I hope that gives us much to think about as we participate in the life of this local church with Jesus our head, our ruler, our sustainer, our sovereign, our sufficient God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today from this Christological passage. Father, how weary, weary we need to be of the world and the lies it will tell us. May we hear the truth of your word and believe clearly all about Jesus as we have been told. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd be patient with this church and with your church across the world. And we pray that you would revive us and make us fit for the living of these days. May we be bold in the proclamation of the gospel and the living of Christian convictions for your glory, Lord. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.